This morning's sermon text is 1 John 4, 7 through 12. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, or no, sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, as we sing with this thought in mind that God is love and how you delighted in your son, the thought that you turned your face away from him as he hung on the cross because of our sin is just spectacular. How can that be so? God, I pray that you would reveal to us more of yourself, that we would marvel at this abundant, extraordinary cosmic love that you have towards your Son and that you allow to be shared with us when we are in him. God, help us marvel at the amazing beauty of your Son and leave here in wonder that you sent him to become one of us, to redeem us, that we would delight in him forever. Amen. I'm actually quite surprised at how many of you are here, some hearty Minnesotans today. Thankful that you're all here. Pray that the uh, the glory of the Lord would warm your hearts and brighten your faces today. I'm excited about this topic today because it has revolutionized my own Christian walk. As I think about the Trinity, how it defines how we should live. Earlier this month, a young student senator at the University of California in Berkeley faced an onslaught of verbal violence for being a Christian. Just a week earlier, the student senate proposed a resolution allowing, affirming all students' right to define their sexual identity however they saw fit. And Isabella Chow did not want to participate in this vote. She didn't even vote against it, but she abstained from the vote. She knew that if she voted no, she would get all kinds of grief for it. So she, with some counsel from others, just abstained, hoping to fly under the radar with her admittedly minority perspective. But she may as well have voted no anyway because she faced a backlash as though she did vote no. People lined up for three hours, hundreds of people taking their turn at the microphone, lambasting her, vilifying her, calling her every terrible name, questioning her heart and her motives, demanding she be removed from her position on the student senate. 
She did all she could just to stare at the floor, trying to hold it together before breaking out in uncontrollable sobbing. And there, joining the mob of attackers, were professed Christians calling her out, saying, she is no Christian, because if she knew that God is love, she would have a different stance. If she would just open up her Bible and see, right in John, 1 John 1, 4, God is love, then she could affirm every feeling that everybody has. Is that really what God is love means? That we should just affirm people in any way they want to live? As we head into Advent this morning, begin a series of Advent-focused uh, sermons on the Incarnation, on the Son of God becoming a man. I want to spend some time just marveling at how gloriously complex and beautiful our God is and see that God is love means far more than Isabella's opponents realized. It actually presents to us a God who demands we set aside everything and find our greatest satisfaction in Him alone. Because God is love presents to us a Trinitarian God who passionately delights in Himself. This God entered into creation as one of us in order to make that glory known. How you understand God determines how you will live. How you define the phrase, God is love, determines how you're going to love the people sitting next to you, the people in your home and your neighbors. And I think that understanding the Trinity appropriately is the key for interpreting God is love and helping us navigate this confused world. If God is just this single, lonely being out there looking for somebody to love, well, we're going to think pretty highly of ourselves. And God needs us in order to have someone to fulfill His identity. If we think the Trinity is just some mathematical formula, then we will rightly align ourselves, decode the rules, figure out the rituals to line our behaviors up with the formula. But when we realize that the core identity of the Trinity is love, it demolishes every false concept of affirming love that our culture believes, and it calls every single one of us to a higher devotion to Christ than we ever realized. So our main idea for today is that the greatest love in this world is the love God has for Himself. And the greatest hope that we have in this world and beyond, the greatest hope we have to satisfy all of our desires, all of our longings, to overcome all of our fears, is the love God has for Himself. When the Bible says God is love, it means God is wholly devoted to delighting in Himself and shaping a world to delight in Him too. So we'll take a look at the Trinity in a couple of parts. First, ask where this idea came from and try to help us shape our concept of the Trinity in an understanding of love. And then we'll turn and see how this Trinitarian love manifests itself in, in Christ and in the church. So first, let's figure out where this concept of the Trinity has come from. It would probably be accurate to say, it is accurate to say that it is biblical, it comes from the Bible, but there's no Bible verse that we can put up on the screen that says, God is a Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, and they're all one God. That would be really helpful. 
The doctrine of the Trinity really developed out of a necessity when early Christians said, had two, two realities put before them. God is one. There is one God. There are no others. But on the other hand, Jesus is God, and he's talking to God, and he sends his spirit as God to dwell in us. How do we fit these things together? They are true. Exodus 20 affirms that first position. I am the Lord your God, says the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God is the only one. He deserves all of your worship. Deuteronomy 6.4 then clarifies or adds to this point. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. Just one. The only one. He's alone. There's no other path to heaven, so to speak, than this one God. But then there's also this reality that we've been seeing become more and more clear as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. If you read all the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, Jesus has power to create and hold things together like he's God. He speaks with authority as God. He claims divine sonship for himself. People bow down and worship him as God. And then the Spirit shows up and he's God and he commands in the same way with the same power. And he dwells in people as God with us. So we've got a little bit of a conundrum here. How can God be one and three at the same time? How does one plus one plus one equal one? This is just terrible math here, God. Only recently in modern history, in the last 50 years, has quantum mechanics figured out how one plus one plus one can actually equal one. But the early Christians didn't know that type of scientific study. For 300 years, they debated this reality. How do we put these two things together? So then you get guys like Tertullian and Hippolytus. I had cool quotes I wanted to share with you, but it would have taken us all day long. But they tried to formulate this, this God, write it down on paper. He's, he's one in essence, but three in persons. One in power, three in economic manifestations. You got it? Oh, that's so confusing. What does that mean? How should we live? So that confused a lot of people, such as Arius. guy comes along and says, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're making stuff up. The reality is Jesus isn't quite God. He's sort of half God. He's big, bigger than us, but that helps us solve all these tensions. Sibelius comes along and says, no, he's wrong. Really, it's one God showing up three different times in three different ways. So here he's a father, and he runs behind the scenes and puts on a new outfit and comes in. Now I'm the son. Go back behind in the green room, change in here. Now I'm the spirit. Same God, three manifestations. And the church said, no, you guys are both terribly wrong, but we don't know how to define it. So they ended up with what we know as the Nicene Creed. Basically affirms, one God, Father, Son, Spirit are God. Don't go outside those boundaries. Don't try to define it any further. Man, who can understand this? It's so complicated. Sometimes I feel like we should just throw our hands up and say, God, is this incomprehensible mystery? You're wasting your time trying to understand it. It makes no sense. I actually start to feel bad for guys like Arius and Sibelius. This is hard. I was so afraid to study the Trinity and accidentally explain something like a clover or an eggshell or water with vapor and ice. All of those are heresy. I don't want to speak heresy and accidentally end up in hell. So 
Just push the Trinity aside. I'm not going to touch it. Let's just stick with Jesus. I know he's God. We'll stay there. But I think God wants a fuller understanding. He wants to pull us in to delight in who he is, not scare us off out of fear that we're going to offend him. There's a better way to understand God that draws us more joyfully into himself. And I think it's beautifully expressed in our text in 1 John 4 today. As we read through this, you may wonder, what in the world does that text have to do with the Trinity? I did have one person ask me that already today. But I think that this text is the beginning point for making the Trinity seem fuller, a beloved doctrine that invites us to greater faithfulness. As we read this section of the text, the main thing that John wants us to know, which isn't my main point for today, stepping aside from the normal program a little bit, but he wants us to know this reality and go out and love one another. You see that in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Clearly, John wants this church to love one another. Our church family and every church around the world should be known for this extraordinary love that we share together. But today I want to focus on the reason for that love, the motivation for that love, and inspiration for that love. Why should we love one another this way? Or how? How can we do this radical love with one another? Look at verse 7. He says, the reason we ought to love one another is because love comes from God. John basically says, if, if you know God, if you're born of God, that means you have a relationship with him and he'll supply you with all the love you need. Go out there and God is going to be with you, handing you love. Here's more love. Here's more love and hand it out like it's free candy to all the kids. Love for everybody. You get some love and you get some love. If he's made you a new person in Christ, then he'll supply you with love from his storehouses. But it goes deeper than simply if love is something he has that he's giving out, as it's something as though it's something apart from himself. Verse 8 says that if you don't love, it's because God is not in you, because God himself is love. It seems somewhat on the surface just like a restatement of what he's already been saying. If you're, if God is alive in you, then you're going to love. If he's not in you, then you're not going to love. But it goes even deeper. There's more going on in the phrase, God is love. It doesn't simply mean that love is something God does. It comes out of him because it's his very nature. Love is what God is. God is love. It's a central defining characteristic of who he is. Everything about him, all of his attributes that we know are manifestations of his love emanating from him. When all the Berkeley students are saying, yeah, that's what we're trying to tell you. But if this is true, that God is love, we are in a lot of trouble. To say that God is love is a claim that puts us into some serious problems. How so? Well, love itself is a relational concept, right? In order to love, you have to have something, someone outside of you to love. 
You can't essentially be love if there's nothing else out there to love. It would be meaningless to say God is love if he's by himself, just always loving nothingness. So if God is love, there one of two things must be true. He's by himself, he's lonely, and he needed something to create in order to love, so now he's dependent upon creation, which many Christians believe. Or somehow God is perfectly satisfied to send out love and somehow it comes back into him. He doesn't need us. But either way, it's a problem for us. Every other religion teaches the first option. For example, Judaism or Islam teach that God is a monad. He's singular. He's it. It's just one clump of God. There's no divisions in persons. Muslims say God cannot have a son. So it's to say that these gods have love as an essential characteristic of their nature makes no sense. Love requires that you love somebody. And if God is alone and needs to create something to love, he needs us. He's dependent upon us to express his core identity. He's not God then. That almost makes us God convenient. The pagan Greek philosopher Aristotle ran into the same problem. As smart as he was to bring logic and reason into the world to help understand the world, he asked this question that when he realized his logic put him in a little bit of a bind when it came to the concept of God. He says, how can God be eternally and essentially good when goodness involves being good to another? He's got the same problem. Apparently God needs creation. But if there's a lack or a need in God, then you can't, by definition, be God. But to say that God is love, as John asserts here in our text, requires somehow that God is multiple. Within himself, there must be more than one. But opposed to some Eastern polytheism or pantheism, he's separate from creation and totally satisfied in his loving self. And this is where some of the greatest thinkers in church history have begun to think about the Trinity. Shortly after the Nicene Creed was finished in the end of the 300s, there was a young man in North Africa who was living out his life in absolute licentiousness, pursuing a sexual identity however he wanted to define it. But God would call him out of his debauchery to become one of the world's greatest theologians. Augustine initially had love all wrong. His father was a complete stranger to him. He had no idea what a loving father was like. And so he gave his life to finding love in sexual freedom. But his mother would not stop praying for him. How many of you have mothers that have been instrumental in your conversion? His mother would not stop praying for him. And eventually, God got a hold of his heart and his mind And he repented of his selfish pursuits and found love from God that he never knew existed. His heart longed for as he found Christ. And he pondered this passage of 1 John 4 going, God is love. He is love and he loves all the time. How could he love me? Fresh out of all these Trinitarian debates, he's I'm not even going to engage those. He says, God is not some mathematical formula. His essential nature is relational love. 
So Augustine and much later, Jonathan Edwards realized that for God to be in a loving relationship, it requires persons within himself. Love demands three parts. You have to have a lover, a beloved, and the love between them. So there's got to be a person who does the loving, and there's an object outside of him who's the beloved, the beautiful object that the lover is enamorated with. And then there's this movement, this flow of love back and forth between them. Now you can see with this framework, when you look at Scripture, it accords wonderfully with who God is. Father, Son, and Spirit, all in a relationship together. Father and Son aren't just titles that we've put on Him so we can understand Him better. To be a father is to say you are in relationship with a son. Part of God's identity is relational. That's His core identity. And we see this in Matthew chapter 3 then. In Jesus' baptism, He comes out of the water and the heavens open up and the Father is looking down smiling and says, My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And He sends love down in the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending upon the Son. And the Son is pleased with His whole life to send that love back up and praise the Father. Incredible. The image of God, Jesus Christ, is so perfect of an image. He's an actual, another person of the Trinity. And the love between them is so pure and holy that it's another person. And they're so intertwined together that they are in this eternal intimacy all together as one. (laughs) This is just mind-blowing. This incredibly beautiful, glorious explanation of the Trinity is the most satisfying thing I've ever heard. It doesn't try to figure out how three equals one. It doesn't suggest that you have to have some Gnostic spiritual insight to become one of the elite that gets the Trinity. This is who we are. This is our identity too. We are relational creatures. And God Himself is relational. And He is working to bring us in relationship with Him. Oh, this God is greater than anything we could imagine. He's more complex than we realize. He's more perfect than we understand. And His love, more satisfying than anything in the universe. Which then leaves us with our other problem. If this eternal love is so satisfying to God, why did He make us at all? For all eternity, Father looking at the Son going, the most beautiful thing. I need nothing else. And sending the love of the Spirit. And the Son sends it right back, said, I love you too, Father. Back and forth for all eternity. What need do we have? God didn't need us. He didn't create us with some kind of free will to say, well, hopefully in their free will love, they'll choose and affirm me. No. He created us because He is so generous so in love with His own image. He said, other people have to share this with me. It's so amazing. So He sends His Son that we could be drawn into this same delight along with Him. That all creation could share the love that He's had before the foundations of the earth. But we said no thanks. Right from the beginning, you see Adam and Eve and every generation after, they have this beautiful display of creation to say God is beautiful. This 
amazing world full of complexity, full of diversity to say God did it. We should marvel at that and instead we go, meh, meh, I'm not interested. There's, there's more interesting things to me. I want nothing to do with that. How offensive is that? God declares, my son is the most beautiful thing in the world. Come and enjoy him with me. And we say, no thanks. And immediately, the world falls into chaos and suffering, despair and destruction. It's like, it almost seems like God didn't know what he was doing. How could God, this loving, good, beautiful God, allow such a wicked, ugly, painful world to continue? He did know what he was doing. All of this is part of his plan. God created all of us, all of us, all of this world to delight in his son. And we said, no thanks. He has every right to get rid of us. He has every right to snuff us out, to just simply stop speaking us into existence. But he's not done. He will get tons of praise from this world. And verses 9 and 10 explain how this love broke into the world to turn this curse around. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Even despite our rejection of His beauty, He's still working to accomplish that same goal. The most beautiful being in existence The Son in whom He delighted above all things. He sent into this world, into this ugly, dirty, cursed world in order to redeem it. Not only does God not need us, but we are opposed to everything beautiful about Himself. Not only does He not need us, He should wipe us out for our constant rejection of Him. He's infinitely beautiful and we are enamored with Football games and cars and drugs and sex and movies and food. How offensive is that? But He is such pure, holy love that our rejection of Him could never overcome His desire to make known His beautiful Son. He sent His Son. His love was made visible in His Son. We couldn't see it in this Trinitarian relationship outside of creation. So he said, I want that world to know how beautiful my son is. And he sent him into this world. The most beautiful image of himself sent to become one of us. This is just astounding. It doesn't make any sense. The beautiful, glorious son of God came into this ugly world? That's what we marvel at at Christmas. The self-satisfied, beautiful, glorious, holy, mighty God who doesn't need us and should get rid of us came to become one of us. God became a man. That's the most absurd thing you will hear in your entire life. God became a man. The Creator who spoke the universe into existence became part of His universe. The eternal God who holds all things together by the word of His power became an ordinary conversation partner. The burning hot, holy fire became a friend who welcomes others in. 
my favorite kids song that we sing together at home says, Jesus, his word upholds the galaxies, but he babbled like a baby in his mother's arms. Jesus understands the universe, but he had to go to school to learn how to write his name. This is scandalous. This is blasphemous. It's why Jews wanted to kill Jesus. How dare you claim to be God? This is why Muslims won't come to Christ. You can't say that a man is God. But Jesus did. This should make us marvel and wonder and worship. Christmas isn't simply about someone coming to rescue us. As though we are the main point of Christmas. Christmas is about the miracle of this self-satisfied God of love becoming one of us to put Himself on display. It's not about us. It's about His glory. It's about bringing Him praise for His beauty. For the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. What was His joy other than the Father picking Him right up out of this world, holding Him before the whole world and saying, Look at My Son! The incredible thing, however, is that He allows us to come along with Him. He exalts His Son and allows us to come alongside. We read this while we were singing. Jesus prayed to the Father in John chapter 17. Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. So the whole reason Jesus came into this world, lived, died on the cross, and rose from the grave was so that He could be exalted alongside the Father. But He continues, But now I am coming to you, and these things that I speak in the world, that they, My people, may have My joy fulfilled in them. Do you hear that? My joy will be fulfilled in them? The Father and the Son, the love and joy they shared together will be fulfilled in us? He keeps explaining in verse 21 of John 17. He's doing all of this so that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one with us so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. What? The eternal love of God from before the foundations of the earth we get to be part of. All of creation and redemption is for the purpose of exalting Jesus on high and then we get to ride His coattails to glory. The whole thing is to create a way for us to look at His Son and say, you are right, God. He is amazing. This wasn't plan B since things didn't work out from the beginning. This was the plan all along. Let this world fall into darkness and curses so that when we come out of it, we will see with more awe than ever before. This is what we were created for. We were made in the image of God that we could be able to see and understand His beauty and participate in His love. Genesis 1.27 says, Male and female, He created them. Male and female, He created them in His image. Part of being in the image of God is being distinct, separate, different. Yet, Genesis 2.24 says, the two will become one flesh. 
The image, to image God is to love one another in our differences, in our diversity, so that all of us coming together display what it means to be diverse, unified. All of this done so the whole world could be enlightened with the beauty of Christ. God is love doesn't mean we affirm whatever desires run through our hearts. God is love means that all of our desires, all of our passions, all of our pursuits are thrown aside when we gaze upon the beauty of Jesus and we're transformed into His likeness and He is the only goal of our hearts. This is our witness to the world, John says in our text in verse 12. No one can see God, but in the church's love for one another, the way we engage the world, the way we enjoy one another, the way we play together and worship together with our eyes focused on Christ, this is how we make God visible to the world. This is what it means to image God, to have dominion over the earth. Everything we do points to the diversity of God in unity over love of His Son. We are a diverse world. Humanity. We are one as humans. With so many different cultures and ethnicities and languages. The church should be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-social status community that is unified in delight in the Son. Marriage and family is this play we put on together. All of us unified into one home, one name, but with different roles, modeling how God loves His Son. The Bible itself, this is incredible, the Bible itself is a picture of God's diversity in unity. Written over a thousand years, 40 different authors, with poetry and history and letters and songs, laws, Each one in a unique way pointing to Jesus. All of it focused on Jesus. And even our call to sing. This is why we sing every time we gather. Jonathan Edwards thought singing in harmony was the best way to display our Trinitarian God, who is, he said, the supreme harmony of all. All of our different voices, all of the different instruments fit together, all focused on displaying the beauty of the Son of God. Beauty is in the eye of the Creator. He's the only beholder that matters. Whatever He says is beautiful, we are made to agree with it. He says His Son is the most beautiful thing in existence. So everything we do ought to be trying to shape ourselves to judge beauty in this world by that standard. If we want to be beautiful, look at the sun. If we want to help others see beauty, look at the sun. Everything we do and say should reveal that our hearts are captivated captivated by the King in His beauty. And somehow, because of His death and resurrection, we are being transformed. We who trust in Him are being transformed to be able to see that beauty and let it overflow in our hearts to share it with others. This is our spectacular Trinitarian God. That's what God is love means. The greatest love in the world is the love God has for Himself. God is love doesn't mean God affirming us, but us being transformed in order to affirm and delight in His Son. That's why He came at Christmas. 
to display love before us that we would be enraptured by it and caught up in his love along with him. And then, back to what John commands us, then we will be able to love one another as he loves himself when we look at and delight in the beauty of his son. Let's pray. God, this is astounding, spectacular, It's mind-boggling. It doesn't make any sense that God who doesn't need creation made us. And we rejected Him and He still pursued us. Because in His Son, He loves us. God, thank You for loving us. For covering us with the beauty of Your Son. That no matter what, what distracts us, what ails us, what fears we have, You are pleased with us because you see Jesus in us. God, if there's anyone here who can't see that beauty, I pray you would open their eyes that they would be able to delight in this amazing God. May the blood of Christ wash over us all that we could see His extraordinary love at work among the church. God, help Redemption City Church to be a display of your love. Be a display of your delight in your Son. Be a display of hope of the coming world when all things are made new and love permeates all things. God, do it for the name, for the sake, the glory of Jesus. Amen.